you're not selling function, you're selling identification. Luxury goods brands are important because people see their values and their ideas reflected into brands. And by buying a Gucci t-shirt or a Vuitton pair of sneakers, uh, you, you know, embody those values. This is the Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer, brand, and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. Welcome back to The Safari. This is Morty Singer speaking to you in January from New York City. And my next guest is, I believe, going to come to us somewhere in Europe. He's an international man of mystery. Uh, but he is quite a fascinating thinker. Uh, I would almost venture to say academic at times, uh, but also a very serious analyst. I would also almost say one of the most famous analysts of luxury goods companies on this planet, uh, as long as I've known him, which is, I don't know, pushing maybe seven or eight years now, uh, Luca Solka has been the single most important and number one ranked analyst in the luxury goods market uh, of all the publicly traded companies in that field. Uh, we have had many spirited debates on the future of luxury, uh, of distribution, the consumer markets, uh, and much, much more, which I'm sure we'll dig into today. So without further ado, let's get started. Luca, thank you so much for joining me on the safari. Where are you uh, uh, talking to me from? Thank you very much indeed, Marty, for, for inviting me. I'm, uh, I'm in Geneva at my, at my place. I've been here for uh, the vast majority of the past year. Uh, in fact, COVID-19 has brought me to completely reorganize my lifestyle. I used to be on and off planes uh, every, almost every day of the week and uh, I've been working from home uh, and I haven't taken a flight anywhere since uh, March 2020. And are you being more productive or as productive or less productive? How do you, how do you feel it's treated you? It was, a, it was a very interesting surprise to see how it can actually work. Uh, as effectively remotely uh, uh, in comparison to being there in person. So very productive. And I've also discovered that working from home and being in front of a computer 12 hours a day is also significantly more tiring it, it, than <laughs> traveling to the four corners of the world. So, you know, lots of new, lots of new learnings. Uh, but, you know, there's, that, of course, this is in the background and in the context of uh, significantly more serious things. So we're very grateful to be in good health and to be in employment and, uh, you know, and think of those that uh, are not. Yeah, well, I'm into that. And uh, and speaking of, of what you do, uh, you're obviously uh, the, the head analyst at Bernstein, um, as we discussed in the opening. Could you explain to me, 
um, how you you came to focus on luxury goods, uh, and maybe just give us a little bit of the ninety second background on your career trajectory and how you you focused uh, a on luxury and b at Bernstein. It was a bit of a serendipitous affair because I started off my career in the very early nineties in consulting. Um, I spent twelve years in consulting. I became a partner of the Boston Consulting Group. And uh, at the height of the dot-com burst crisis, uh, one of my most important clients at that time, uh, whom I was trying to sell an assignment to, asked me to jump over and to be uh, the right-hand man in that company, uh, which was a publicly traded uh, luxury goods conglomerate that needed to be restructured and refinanced. So I took the uh, chance and uh, spent three years in that position, uh, restructured and refinanced the business. And in the process, I discovered that there was such thing as the sell side because I was talking to analysts uh, from the other side of the table. And when this project was, uh, was over, uh, Bernstein approached me and uh, I learned about this great company and uh, um, and uh, I thought that there was a good match between what I like and uh, what uh, Bernstein was uh, standing for. And uh, I've been on the sell side now for 15 years. Well, so, so what you are quite well known for, I believe, is trying to explain to a quite left brain uh, group of people who are effectively investors, um, sometimes concepts that are quite ephemeral, um, such as brand temperature as one that I think you coined with some some friends of yours. And I've often found it quite refreshing to find someone in the financial field being able to take concepts that are quite hard to grasp and explaining them in a way that I feel have, have been uh, quite, quite unique. I, I don't believe that I've ever stumbled across a financial uh, analyst who is able to eloquently um, explain what is the, the strange wizardry that is the luxury goods industry. And um, so, so maybe talk a little bit about your approach and how it is indeed quite difficult to explain some of these concepts to people and, and how you go about uh, coming up with your methodology. But, you know, Morty, I think that uh, at the bottom of all this is the fact that uh, luxury goods is very data poor. So I see it as my task uh, to create data and to build uh, data that allows us to have informed analysis and make then uh, reasonable predictions on what is to come in the future. So I've been working a lot to try and bring science to a very artsy kind of world and, uh, and try and explain the most important mechanisms through which value is created. Uh, this, you could argue, has been, um, you know, my task and uh, my overarching vision over time. So I haven't been trying to just look at uh, the annual reports and the financials. What I really try to do is to build a bridge between uh, the real world that I saw uh, within companies uh, operating in luxury goods and uh, then uh, show the value creation. And so, for as an example, in in one of the inputs into your equations of brand temperature, um, 
what is counterintuitive, for example, is that um, over-distribution, which to a financial person may seem great, they have lots of distribution, that means that's good for business, it's more revenue, but how more revenue in the luxury uh, industry can in fact be a detriment to your brand temperature. And there are other inputs too. I mean, could you maybe give a few examples of how this um, this sort of uh, uh, this little ghost that is brand the spirit, this ephemera, um, is is um, brought into focus maybe by some of some of your thinking. Well, let me first say that we are in a relatively paradoxical situation when it comes to luxury goods, because luxury goods brands, in a way, are selling the idea and the perception of exclusivity, but they're selling it by the million. So a lot of the work we carried out. Uh, as focused on uh, trying to understand how brands can get away with murder, how brands can, on the one hand, grow their business, and at the same time, uh, maintain perceived exclusivity. We have identified 10 major levers. Uh, One of them, for example, is what I call price discipline. Price discipline means that if you are a brand and you never discount, and if you're selling all of your products directly through your own stores or through your own websites, over time, consumers will think that price equals value and will have a very high opinion of your brand, never mind what the gross margin in reality is. But by contrast, uh, if you sell at $100 today and then discount to $30 tomorrow, people will think that. Uh, your prices are overinflated and that you are actually taking them for for a ride when they buy at full price. So one of the things we do is we measure the ratio of off-price stores to full-price stores. Uh, We ideally would not want to have any off-price store presence. We also scrape the internet now and look at uh, the discounts. We look at all of the products offered by a brand and we look at which uh, percentage of those are sold at a discount. And we look at what is the uh, magnitude of the discount. And this is what we now call the price discipline index. We publish it on a monthly basis. We have a partner, Arena Analytics, that is helping us with the uh, internet scraping activity, and this is uh, an example of a data set mm-hmm. that uh, that we create. And so, interestingly, you talk about discount, but you also talk about distribution, and the uh, the the issue that both of those things, pricing and overexposure, can cause to a brand. So, there are two areas that have always been very um, uh, interesting to me in luxury goods. One is off price. Uh, and the other one is the internet. And for many years, uh, let's call it the outlet channels, uh, but also the internet channels were considered um, a no-go for many of the luxury houses, indeed some of the largest in the world um, and some of the biggest conglomerates therein. Um, I think they have both changed their tune to both of those channels of distribution, uh, uh, the outlet world as well as the uh, the internet. If we start with 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 the the the, the off-price channel, um, I know you have had has spent a lot of time with the Bista Village shopping collection and and uh, and Scott Malkin's team at Value Retail about you know discounting is not always created equal right there are, there are graceful ways and brand accretive ways to do things even in that channel um, maybe touch on on sort of the manner in which one discounts 
um, as a as a way of uh, framing that conversation. Totally, totally. Indeed, Morty, if I look at what different brands do, there's many different ways that you can approach uh, this issue. If you're selling apparel, uh, it's almost inevitable that you will end up at the end of the season with some inventory on your hands. You're not going to be able to sell 100% of your products at full price. Now, if you take that end of season inventory and put it in an off price channel, in a very decent and good quality environment, uh, like the value retail villages are, uh, where there's good service, where there's the opportunity for consumers to uh, meet with the brand and, uh, and experience uh, the brand firsthand, uh, then I think that that is acceptable. And what I mean by acceptable, I mean that it's not going to take away from consumers wanting to spend money at full price in your flagship stores, because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, that is what counts. These luxury goods companies have de facto become retailers. They operate from very expensive prime locations, and therefore they need to produce very good sales per square foot. By contrast, if you're producing on purpose for uh, the factory outlet channel and you are uh, in a way, creating an assortment that is not really a good bargain for people. It's just produced at a lower cost to sell at a lower price. Then uh, I think that that is a very different kettle of fish. It would uh, teach your consumers that uh, uh, your brand is not really a brand that they should be buying at full price. And so in a way, you go down a slippery slope because if... Uh, your flagship stores were struggling and you were trying to make money by creating products on purpose for the off-price channel, uh, then the more you engage with the off-price channel, the less people will be prepared to part with their money to buy at full price in your flagship stores. And at the end of the day, your business is going to be in a sort of doom cycle. So uh, indeed, I think that there's a, a very uh, clear distinction uh, to be drawn there. And I think that uh, value retail has a principle of not accepting that brands produce on purpose for mm -hmm. uh, their stores, but rather use authentic and seasoned inventory. And I think that this is commendable. When it comes to digital, to, to, to uh, continue with, uh, with your question, Indeed, I think that luxury goods brands were very reluctant for many years to engage uh, with this channel. Uh, they were pushing back a lot. And uh, maybe one of the reasons was that uh, they could uh, produce good growth by expanding in China for the good part of the first decade in this century. But it became very obvious that uh, first, if you want to, to intercept younger consumers, and especially younger consumers in China, you need to be all over the place when it comes to social media and KOLs and that print media as a more limited audience today than it had 20 years ago. And second, that uh, if you're clean when it comes to your physical distribution and you have good control of your physical distribution and of your pricing, then selling online is just going to increase the convenience for consumers to buy from your brand. It's not going to create price interference. That I think is the most important, which is instead the case if you're overexposed to wholesale, today uh, we've seen uh, many brands uh, 
announcing that they're cutting wholesale, what they're really saying is that they're cutting their gray market exposure because gray market inventory was uh, spilling over onto marketplaces and it was interfering with the brand's efforts to try and sell at full price from their brand.com websites. So um, I think that uh, there's a much better understanding of opportunities coming from digital and uh, how digital could potentially play along with uh, physical uh, infrastructure to enhance uh, the brand position rather than, uh, rather than weaken it. Speaking of, of, of purity of distribution and purity of brand, um, it's long been rumored, indeed, I would say it's a fact, um, that some luxury brands burn end-of-season uh, products in order to um, not have to discount. Um, I also believe that the consumer today uh, is so savvy and is so mindful of their consumption and uh, those brands with whom they should uh, give their custom, that the idea of a brand burning uh, leather products um, is indeed um, something that some would deem to be disgraceful. And how, um, in fact, the supply chain and the transparency of that supply chain can actually become a marketing tool when uh, here for two, it was always back at a back of house thing. It was never shown. But today, indeed, showing best practices, sustainable practices, indeed, maybe using outlets versus burning um, as a graceful mechanism to, to maintain um, that, uh, that, that product in, in the world. Um, do you see that as actually being a, a thing, um, that the sustainability of, uh, of, for example, the Caring Group? I note that Chanel just hired a head of sustainability, uh, sustainability last week. Maybe it's this week, actually. Um, t- tell me about that piece of it, the sort of sustainability of luxury goods, which in, on some level is, is quite hard given the consumption of leather, for example. I, indeed, I think that uh, both consumers and even more investors are concerned and uh, are focused on issues relating to the environment, uh, society, and governance. Uh, and uh, one of the issues that you point to, uh, the end of season inventory is clearly uh, important. There's uh, so many other issues that have come uh, to the fore uh, when we look at, for example, uh, equal opportunities to uh, to uh, people within these companies when we look at a fair treatment of suppliers, uh, when we look at animal cruelty, all of these elements are important and you can have major social media uh, problems uh, if you're caught on uh, the wrong side of the uh, of the fence. So my uh, sense is that um, companies in, uh, in, you know, uh, have been very keen to show uh, their qualifications. There's been a bit of a race uh, in recent years to, to try and show their best side. Uh, we don't necessarily have to fall for that, especially our job uh, and our responsibility to institutional investors is to try and compare oranges to oranges and apples to apples, because uh, we've seen that, uh, especially in the initial years, the heads of uh, ESG and sustainability were typically PR, former PR executives. So 
there was an effort to show what uh, companies were best at and putting on the side what they didn't necessarily want uh, to, be, uh, to be seen. Uh, there's a need for standards in, uh, in this area. There's a need for something that resembles IFRS in financial reporting. And much of our recent work has been focused on proposing these standards. We have published reports to look at uh, what you call the materiality uh, matrix for ESG issues in the industry. And we've also come up with a way to measure performance in ESG that is comparable from one company to the other. Let me name one point uh, that uh, uh, could potentially be overlooked when we have this debate, the tax rate that companies pay is important. You can uh, you know, speak a good uh, game talking about your responsibility to society, but then if you forget to pay tax, that is not so good. So overall, I think that we need to look at uh, all of these elements combined. We find, for example, that uh, upstream integration is um, is a very important uh, starting point. Yeah. If you if you take care of your own manufacturing and your own sourcing, you're more likely to uh, treat your workers fairly uh, rather than if you strong arm third party suppliers. So we we try and look at uh, the fundamentals of uh, these various uh, issues and come up with what we can because of course. Disclosure at the moment is uh, not perfect, and, uh, and, 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 and there's more to be done on this front. And I'm sure that companies will uh, operate, and we've seen and heard many of them uh, commit to ESG uh, very convincingly. We'll be right back. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage, and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry. And it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. Back to the safari. So many questions, so little time. So uh, ticking on to a few more, including globalization, uh, the tourist, uh, and then streetwear, and we'll, we'll tick through them. So globalization, um, in this pandemic, uh, as we sit today on this recording, January 2021, um, the world is still gripped by the pandemic. Um, the tourism industry has ground to a complete halt almost. And yet we hear reports of some brands, at least, finding that their domestic um, uh, uh, consumer are actually now shopping and they're captive. Uh, they're stuck at home or stuck in their country and are, are not traveling, but they're, they're not shopping elsewhere. They're shopping at home. Um, do you find any interesting um, anecdotes uh, regarding um, the, the virtue of the traveling consumer um, after the pandemic? Uh, have the... Uh, domestic consumers been trained to shop more at home? Do you see any shifts in the consumer, therefore, uh, that come out of um, uh, the, this, the importance, more or less, of the historical focus on 
the traveling luxury consumer? Well, I think we need to understand that there's a counterintuitive element in this pandemic. And uh, in fact, if you look at what the industry anticipated growth could be in 2020, uh, this was significantly more pessimistic at the beginning of the year than what we've seen uh, in the updates so far. There's two reasons for that. One, uh, Chinese spend repatriation to the mainland has been a far smoother affair than initially feared. But two is the fact that European and American consumers were forced to save a ton of money. They didn't go out, so they didn't buy as much petrol. They didn't go to restaurants. They didn't go to cinemas. They didn't go to hotels. They didn't go on holiday. So some of those savings found their way into discretionary spend and into uh, personal luxury goods shopping. And uh, I think that this was also a way to try and find some consolation. There's a lot that we were forced to give up, seeing our friends, seeing our family, going out, having a good time. So I believe that uh, buying and, and, and shopping was probably... Uh, one of the very few pleasures that uh, remained. Yes. What we need to consider is that when we finally go back to uh, our old normal, uh, there's going to be a lot of pent-up demand for these experiences. There's going to be a lot of people wanting to go out, see their friends, go to restaurants, travel around. So that could be a bit of a ricochet when it comes to spending money on products. Yeah. So paradoxically, we would probably be seeing a loss of altitude, at least when it comes to European and American consumers, uh, in their spend on personal products, yeah. uh, maybe at the end of this year or maybe at the beginning of 2020, depending on the speed of the vaccine distribution and depending on how the new strains uh, cooperate with the vaccines. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully they do, um, or or at least we get ahead of them. So, speaking, let's do ninety seconds about um, the streetwear effect on the luxury industry. Uh, obviously, there are brands like Supreme that would be deemed by many as bona fide luxury brands themselves. There are smaller groups like Palace in the UK and Kith in New York and, and, and a string of others. Uh, but the influence of that style of clothing has has obviously found itself into creep into every single brand um, that has a hoodie or sneakers or, or some form of uh, casual, interesting uh, clothing. Um, is this something, do you believe, it will be semi-permanent? Is it a fashion trend? Um, how do you feel about it and, and, and how does it move the business? I think it's probably more than a fashion trend. I see it as a secular shift. Uh, we're seeing consumers uh, consistently move to more of a casual attitude and ditch uh, formal wear and suits. And I believe that uh, uh, this trend has an element of uh, uh, durability in it that uh, uh, should sustain. Uh, big brands and uh, some of the luxury small brands were very uh, smart to integrate uh, elements uh, of streetwear in their offer and uh, through uh, these elements recruit uh, a younger consumer audience that is going to be the uh, mainstream luxury goods consumer audience of tomorrow. Uh, the genius of brands like Gucci or Balenciaga has been to understand uh, that the consumers would be uh, 
prepared to spend between $500 and $1,000 on a pair of sneakers or on a T-shirt or on a hoodie. And, uh, but overall, this would be seen as an acceptable amount of money and probably also uh, not a big amount of money, at least in absolute terms, in relative terms to the functional product. This is a lot of money, but this is what the luxury goods industry is about, right? Yeah. You're not selling function. You're selling uh, identification. Luxury goods brands are important because people see their values and their ideas reflected into brands. And by buying a Gucci t-shirt or a Vuitton pair of sneakers, uh, you, uh, you know, embody those values and you uh, get to... Yep. Uh, live those values so speaking so speaking of living values and 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 communicating something about oneself let's just spend a few seconds talking about the beauty industry so after the second world war the 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 prestige beauty industry after the second world war the first thing that french women went out to buy was lipstick uh leonard lauder famously coined the term the lipstick index which i think really is more in my view the aspirational index than a lipstick index about the opening price point nature of um, a lipstick or an eyeshadow or something that mm-hmm. one can pull out of one's one's purse very easily and affordably. A Chanel lipstick, I think, is anywhere between forty and sixty dollars. So it's expensive for a lipstick, but it's affordable to anyone. Um, do you think that the prestige beauty players, um, as I think many seem to think, will uh, be some of the first to rocket out of this? Um, out of this uh, pandemic when the world starts to spin, hopefully at the second half of this year? What's your take on, on, on the beauty guys? I think it should be the case. My sense is that indeed uh, people will want to go back to life. They will want to look good. Uh, they will want to uh, enjoy their time. And uh, I'd expect that uh, cosmetics and beauty in general would be uh, enjoying uh, this uh a significant amount of pent up demand, and and is that the case in China? Uh, have you uh, how is is there a le- le- obviously China? We all know that last year they actually grew net net the business over the year prior, notwithstanding being closed for a few months at the beginning. Do you feel that um, the Chinese um, have any fundamentally different characteristics than consumers in the rest of the world to not suggest that um, you know we can experience maybe not quite the V shaped recovery that they did? Um, but um, but something similar? But my understanding is that cosmetics uh, were probably on the back foot in the US, but not necessarily in China. So I'd expect that uh, the context for beauty uh, brands in China should remain benign. Uh, a few years ago, we had the explosion of the Korean uh, beauty brands in China, but I think that they're less relevant today and consumers have embraced higher-end Western cosmetics brands and beauty brands in general. For sure, you have a different attitude uh, towards the big product families. Chinese consumers don't consume as much fragrances, for example, as we do. Uh, they uh, consume more skincare, though, and uh, at the end of the at the end of the day, uh, there's a very significant market opportunity there. And and to to speak about shifting channels of, of distribution, uh, coming back to maybe the West uh, for a second, the department store in the United States has historically been a very different animal to their. Um, 
compatriots in the same business across the pond in Europe. Um, the Europeans having more of a concession-based platform, allowing stores to run their or brands to run their own stores within their walls. America has been much more of a wholesale uh, platform, and I think has been quite difficult uh, for those uh, department stores to manage in an environment where the brands want to control their own destiny. Um, what is your sense on on the department store uh, as a platform, both here and elsewhere going forward? I think that there's less of a need for department stores as a, a physical place to distribute products. With the ubiquitous development of digital distribution, uh, the moment you know what you want to buy, you can find it on the internet quite easily. And there's going to be both brands and specialist multi-brand players to offer it to you. Uh, what I think department stores need to go back to is their initial function of discovering uh, new brands, discovering new products, and creating unique assortments, curating their assortments so that people can learn and can be surprised when they visit those uh, stores. It's easy to find what you know exists on the internet, but it's not so easy to find what you don't know exists. Yes. And as a consequence, uh, I think that uh, big stores can still play the role of uh, educating consumers, uh, entertaining consumers. Uh, they can provide excellent uh, service, for example. I see that European players are probably better organized to... Um, uh, to play this function. If I look at a company like Harrods, for example, the advantage they have is that they operate from a handful of locations. Uh, it's easier to be a destination and to be uh, attracting consumers on the back of the function that I was describing uh, if you are in the center of a major city and uh, you have a global audience uh, coming to that, to that city. It's very difficult to transform that way if you are in the middle of nowhere and you are playing out of a mediocre shopping mall. So my view is that uh, American department stores will probably have to uh, trim their networks if they want to stay relevant to consumers. Yeah, I, I agree that I think the discovery thing is hugely important in the department stores. I also think convenience. I mean, many people forget that the, uh, one can amble through a department store and yes, discover something new, but it's a one-stop shop typically for whatever one might need. So I think that um, you're right, going back to uh, maybe some of the roots of, of trying to, to, to create customer service and to be able to be this um, temple to uh, customer centricity, I think, is is indeed on the cards. Um, tell me about your views in general uh, as we sort of wrap up our time together. Uh, what what do you think is interesting trends that have come out of the out of the um, pandemic, uh, either consumer uh, centric or even brands, things that they have done to change? Uh, I know you know Balenciaga put a show uh, on a computer game, a video game, for example. There's been things that have happened, uh, some of them more interesting than others. Uh, what do you think is um, is interesting? What are the things that are, are sort of nagging at you a little bit for you to go and pull the string and, and the, follow the thread a little bit more? Well, I think that our memory is very is very special because when we think back about what happened, 
uh, we typically remember the nice things. So in five years, when we will think about this pandemic, uh, what is it nice about it that we don't necessarily see today as we are in the midst of it? My sense is that we learned a lot uh, during these months. We learned how to do things differently, uh, how to use uh, digital, you know, much more effectively. And this is uh, for us when it comes to talking uh, to each other. And we talk. I'm talking to my computer, but I'm actually talking to you now. And normally we would have done this uh, in, a, in a New York restaurant. It's not that I don't want to go back to New York restaurants, but uh, uh, we have different ways that we've been learning about. I think that engaging consumers uh, with digital and virtual fashion shows has been another uh, very interesting uh, opportunity for brands to, 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 you know, to, to, to tackle a completely new front on which, of course, there's going to be uh, trial and errors. Uh, but I, I believe that uh, this is uh, good and, 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 and will be relevant. Uh, in the future, as well as the ability, for example, of bridging uh, digital and, and physical distribution. I think that there was a time when people were thinking about these two as alternatives. Uh, with all the work that has been done by sales assistants on the phone or on WeChat to talk to consumers and to build a bridge between the brand and uh, M-commerce or e-commerce, we see that there's a continuum. And uh, I think that uh, one of the most interesting um, insights from this uh, period has been the very important uh, role that customer service can play. So te technology-enabled clienteling, maybe. Exactly, exactly. So as we, um, as, we, as we leave each other, sir, thank you for doing this with me. Um, can we tr try and give us a little bit of light at the end of this podcast, a little bit of hope uh, with your, and we will, we will not hold you, hold you to it, but when do you think this world is going to start spinning again? Um, is it going to be in the second quarter, third quarter, next year? What are you, what are you thinking? You know, um, I can I can speak with two voices. Uh, one is the luxury goods analyst, and I can tell you when it comes to the luxury goods sector and the luxury goods stocks, uh, we are already in a very good place. Uh, the stocks have been uh, very resilient and uh, they've been doing very well. Now, when it comes to uh, the individual and when it comes to our own uh, prospects, I think it's going to very much depend on the speed of this vaccine distribution. Um, we are prepared to see some light at the end of the tunnel in the second half of this year, and we hope in Switzerland to be uh, having a vaccine um, maybe at the end of the second quarter if we're lucky and more likely in the third quarter. So uh, there's going to be a bit more patience uh, required, but uh, at the end of this, we will have our lives back again. And uh, I very much look forward to coming to New York and seeing you in person when we when we do. Absolutely, patience will be required, but we will we will welcome you with open arms. Uh, Lucas Solka of Bernstein, thank you for coming on the safari with me. Thank you, Morty, for inviting me. Stay safe. Take care. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. 
If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.